Right, let's go ahead and get into our study this morning as we take our final week in this series called The Seven Trials of Faith, Looking at the Life of Abraham. If you have a Bible this morning, you're going to want to open it up to Genesis chapter 22. As we'll see in just a minute when we read the passage together. This chapter opens with the sentence, God tested Abraham. We need to recognize, we always need to remember that this chapter of Genesis follows years and years of Abraham's walk with God. If this is a test, this is not the entry exam, right? This is not the beginning of God's relationship with Abraham. It's not a line that God draws in the sand and says, if you really want to know me, here's what I demand. This is more like the final exam. Another thing that we need to keep in mind is that when God tests us, he doesn't do so to see how we're doing because he doesn't know. Right? When God tests someone, he's not going, I wonder if they're really as faithful as they appear. Boom. Instead, he does it to show us where we're at, okay? It's not revealing. A test is not revealing to God. A test is revealing to us, okay? Finally, before we read the passage, what I really want to emphasize this morning, and it's covered in the title of our sermon this morning, Trusting God, period, okay, is that all of the other facets that we've looked at, trusting that God will provide, trusting that God will lay out a plan, trusting that God will work in his power so that we don't have to figure it out on our own, all of these things. Underlying that is just the idea of trusting God. And of course, with that idea of trusting God, period, it's almost a, a, a thesaurus way of saying trusting God no matter what. Okay. This day that opens the book of Genesis in Genesis chapter 22 is a dark day in Abraham's life. And that's the test. Will he trust God in the darkness? Let's read together, starting in Genesis chapter 22. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled a donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering, and he arose and went to the place which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. 
And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. He said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide. As is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Let's pray. Father, your word in the New Testament says that these things were written down for our example, for our edification, for the building up of your church. And so we know that this is not just a word that records the way that you worked in the life of a man many centuries ago. But it is your word to us today. And so we pray, God, that as we open your word this morning, that you would speak to your people, that you would lead us and instruct us in truth, that you would tear down the idols and the lies and the misconceptions that drive our lives, and that you would reveal to us yourself. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If we were to write a book and try and tell the story of Abraham, this would be the climax. In fact, there's some literary features here that intentionally tie Genesis 22 to the beginning of all of Abraham's story in Genesis 12. Just as God speaks into Abraham's life and says, come to a land which I will show you in chapter 12. Here he says, come to a mountain which I will show you. Just as God lays out the promises of the covenant, which by the way are repeated many many times across the chapters between chapter 12 and chapter 22 here. But here we have the fullest and most similar expression. After the... um, intervention of the sacrifice of Isaac, God doubles down on the original promise, and again we find uh, in verses um, 
uh, 17, I will surely bless you and multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. And then notice in verse 18, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Right? It's a reconfirmation of everything. In fact, that's what the test is about. It's a reestablishing and a demonstration Okay, that God's plan is in action and will come to pass. This is the climax. Okay. As I said earlier, it's very important when we look at something that is as intense as this, as we try and put ourselves in the shoes of Abraham, it's very important that we keep in mind that this is not the entry exam. Okay. The cost, the danger, the darkness, the struggle, the pain that is involved in the test that is laid out before Abraham is not for beginners and novices. Okay? In the same way that if you decide, I'd like to be a doctor, they don't make part of the entry to that program putting a living patient before you and say, let's see how you handle a scalpel. Right? When it comes to Abraham and his son Isaac and what God asks of him here, this is after 25 and then some, okay? Maybe as many as 30 or 40 years, okay? Considering uh, Isaac here is at least five or six, but maybe as old as 14 or 15, okay? He has walked with God for a long time and remembered the existence of Isaac, is evidence of God's work in Abraham's life. A miraculous child, born to a man at the age of 100, and not just his barren wife, but his barren post-menopausal wife. And this is important, because every once in a while you will hear a story on the news of a mother or a man who heard some crazy thing from God and killed their child. These things happen. And so we have to wrestle with that and go, what is the difference here? The difference is the demonstrable track record that Abraham has of hearing from God. This is not like the the out-of-the-blue call in Genesis chapter 12 that just involved, come to a land that I will show you, okay, a step of faith. If that's a step of faith, this is an outright leap, right? It is different. It is unique. And when we look at this, one of the things that's the most striking about this chapter is the complete lack of internal experience. We aren't given any insight to what Abraham is thinking or feeling. We don't see any wrestling at all. In fact, it is disturbing his resolve, isn't it? He doesn't ask any questions. He doesn't delay the timeline. He just marches through the steps, moving towards it. Zero hesitation. In fact, if I were to look for another place in all of literature that is similar to this, I would think of my favorite passage in Les Mis, where Jean Valjean discovers that another man is falsely being tried as him. And he knows the man is innocent because he is Jean Valjean. But he's built this life for himself. And if he raises his hand and takes the crime, he may go to prison for the rest of his life. It's a three-strikeout policy. And so he has all of these reasons not to go. 
I'm doing so much good. They'll probably figure out that the guy is innocent anyways. Maybe salvation will come from another corner. But the whole time he's wrestling with this, he's hiring a carriage. And he's traveling towards the thing. And as he has this internal wrestle, it continues all the way until he says, there is no way I'm going to reveal myself to the court. As his hand is on the door of the court and he throws open the door and he says, I know that that man is innocent because I am Jean Valjean. I love that passage. But one of the things that's exciting and compelling about that passage is the internal wrestling. The struggle that makes it accessible. We don't have that here. I mean, be honest. Doesn't Abraham read here as if he's callous? As if he has no sense of compassion or care for his son? His resolve is so strong in this, it seems not, not just superhuman, it almost seems subhuman. But, I would suggest to you that we know better because God knows better. Listen again to the words, the setup, if you will, of this test in verse 1. God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. And he said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. Do you see how slow and intentional God's phrasing is there? He doesn't say take Isaac. He says, take your son. And then he says your only son, and that's a little bit weird, isn't it? Because Abraham does have another son, the son of Hagar, right? Ishmael. But here he's completely off the table. It's as if he doesn't count. Okay. What we don't get, and we can miss out on this in the New Testament that also uses this language of only begotten son to talk about Jesus, is it's not about no other children. It's about unique status. There's a sense where Jesus is the only child of God even though we were all his children. In the same way, there's a sense where Isaac is the only son of Abraham, even though Ishmael. Take your son, your only son, and then it says, whom you love. Now, we throw around that language of love all the time. But you know what's really interesting about this passage? This is the first time the Hebrew word for love occurs in all the Bible, in reference to Abraham's love for his son. This word that is so defining of the scriptures that it occurs countless times after this and becomes one of the defining traits of God's own character because the New Testament tells us that God is love. But the first appearance of the word is reserved for this moment in time. This is not just a biological offspring. And it's not just the son of promise who came miraculously is the son that he loves. But it doesn't change the resolve. When we look at the feelings here, the feelings are present. And, and think, of, think of the feelings as Abraham's presented, not just with the words of God, but the words of Isaac. Here he is, he takes the servants. He says, you guys stay here. Me and my son alone will go up the mountain. And Isaac is at least old enough to do the math. And so look at what happens in verse 7. Isaac said to his father Abraham, my father, and he said, here I am, my son. Do you hear the repeat there? God says, Abraham, here I am. Isaac says, Abraham, he says, here I am, my son. 
Listen, he says, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Now, one of the things that we often forget in this story is if Abraham is in his hundreds and Isaac is uh, older uh, you know, than, than five, which again, there's a lot of reason to believe that he's a teenager here. There is an amazing willingness that Isaac, or a trust that Isaac displays in this. Right? We don't see a struggle or a fight. But it also says that Abraham ties up his son. Okay? But even in the beginning, Isaac starts to look around and he goes, okay, we're going to sacrifice to the Lord. There's the knife. There's the wood for the altar. There's the fire to light the wood. Where is the lamb? Will you just put yourself in Abraham's shoes this morning and ask how that question would have hit you? But almost without any hesitation, without missing a beat, he just says, God will provide the lamb. And they keep walking. I think it's easy for us to spoil the story because we know how it ends. We know that the intervention is inevitable. But I want you to just forget about that for a second. Lay it aside and listen to verse 10. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. The narrator doesn't pull any punches, does he? And one of the reasons must be because clearly, again, even here, in the final moment, no hesitation. We do not get the idea that Abraham is expecting God to intervene. As if he's like, okay, God, well, I guess you're really going to have me do it. You know, like some sort of parent who's testing a child's resolve on some ridiculous plan. It's not like that at all. In fact, notice what happens next. The Lord, it says, the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, and I don't know about your translation, but mine has an exclamation mark, right? This is an emergency command, very loudly given to stop something in process in the final moments. So it's important that we consider the feelings of this test. But it's also important to consider the facts. We too often juxtapose facts and feelings as Christians. When our feelings are God-given, part of what it means to be human, and something that is in some way manifestly a part of God's character. Does God express emotions in the scriptures continuously? Okay. But there still needs to be a balance of fact and fiction, or fact and feeling. Okay. And, and that's not to say, I say facts, not reason. Because is this a reasonable story? Do we get the idea that Abraham looks at these things, assesses this, and says, well, rationally, this is okay, and this is what I should do? God has spent 30-plus years teaching Abraham that he's not like the other gods. In fact, for the rest of the scriptures, God will continuously remind Israel that he abhors child sacrifice. But Abraham doesn't argue, right? Think back in Genesis chapter 18. God and Abraham are overlooking Sodom and talking. And what's the question Abraham has? God says, I'm going to destroy Sodom. And he goes, wait a minute. Won't you do rightly? What if you find righteous people? Do we find any argument here? 
We don't. Here's some facts we should keep in mind. Fact one, God is God. Is it not right? Is it not fair? Is it not appropriate for God to ask this of Abraham? Underlying that question is another question. Who is God? And I'm not just talking about his character, I'm talking about the position. God is God. And the deeper our faith gets, the more we recognize that. We say, like the author of Ecclesiastes, you're God in heaven. I'm just a human on earth. You say, like Job, who can argue with the living God, the creator of all things? That's the first component here. And the truth is, this is one of the places where many of us may have a touch point to the test of Abraham. Because God does stuff that hurts. He takes. Many of us in this room have experienced personal grief. Losing a sibling, or a best friend, or a child, or a parent. And ultimately, it doesn't matter if it was a car accident or cancer. Ultimately, we can trace the chain back to God and we know it. And that's part of what makes it so difficult. God, how could you? God, why did this happen? Why them and not me? Why them and not someone else? Why do the wicked prosper while the righteous die? Right? Suddenly, this chapter doesn't seem so distant. But it is for a really significant reason. The question of this chapter is not God's will and what are you going to do about what he does. Abraham is made an accomplice to God's will. The question is not what are you going to do if I take your son? It's will you give with your own hand your son to me. It's different, isn't it? There's a difference between the collateral damage of God's will as it plays out in our lives and God asking us to freely open our hand. There's a difference between us being overpowered because God is greater than us and we are limited human beings and surrender. In fact, surrender sounds like too weak of a word, doesn't it? Surrender is if Abraham just stands idly by and says, okay. Surrender doesn't sound like raising the knife and obeying the command of God that doesn't make any sense and costs you everything. But this brings us to the second fact. God is God. Second, God gave Isaac. And not just gave him in the general, normal sense that we can forget, you know, because two bodies have a sexual act and then there's a baby. It seems like natural. 
We forget that it's God who opens the womb and God who provides. We can forget all these things, but not Abraham. Isaac is a gift. And not one he stumbled upon across the road. One that God gave him personally, clearly. And so the question becomes, can the giver also take? There's a paradox of faith. God is our provider. But sometimes the greatest threat to our relationship with God is his provision. Did you know that? Many of us can envision, maybe we've even experienced, maybe it's where we are now. We need something. And so we ignite this relationship with God. We become dependent upon the one who's powerful enough to meet our needs. And then he provides, and we have everything we want, and we walk away. We see it in Jesus' ministry. On one occasion, he comes across a group of ten lepers. And he graciously and mercifully and powerfully heals all of them. And they all go off on their way. And only one comes back and says, thank you. Only one was more interested in the giver than the gift. Now Abraham does pass this test, but many don't. Think of Jeroboam. Jeroboam is this completely out of nowhere, random Israelite. And a prophet sent by God comes to him in the days of Solomon and says, hey, guess what? You're going to be king. God has decided to give you 10 of the tribes of Israel. And if you obey the Lord, your son and your son's son and so on and so forth will rule as king of Israel. Jeroboam doesn't apply for the job. We have no reason to believe that he earned it. It's not like David when God says, I'm looking for someone, uh, you know, knowing the heart, a man after my own heart. There's none of that. It's just sudden and random. And suddenly, Jeroboam is the king over ten tribes of Israel. But the next thought he has is, how am I going to protect what God has given me? And this is how he does it. He says, all right, I am king now. How am I going to stay king? If my people continue to go to Jerusalem to worship for the festivals at the temple, the palace being right next door, they're going to go back to the sons of David. They're going to forsake me. He says, so I'll build my own places of worship. I'll install my own priesthood. I'll create my own golden calves, and I'll even have two of them for convenience. Do you know what Jeroboam becomes? He becomes the first character in the Bible to use religious ideology for political ends. But who gave him the kingdom? The fear of it being taken away was enough for him to forsake God. We could point to other stories. Let's just do one more, and one that's relatively close to that. Consider the king Saul. Just like Jeroboam, he's made king. In fact, he's so confused by God making him king that he, he doesn't really understand it and he kind of hides from it. But what happens is over the course of Saul's reign, he's disobedient. Because of his own personal sin, the kingdom is removed from his hands and given to David. And all of this is explained clearly and fully to Saul. 
Saul, because of your sin. And how does Saul respond to the kingdom being taken? He tries to kill the new appointee, David. He devotes years of his life to chasing David around and trying to put him to death. For Saul, the gift is greater than the giver, more important, more significant. And that's one of the questions that Abraham is being asked here. Do you love me more than Isaac? Now that you have what you always wanted, what you always prayed for, is there still room for me to be God? True faith presses beyond a vending machine God who just meets our needs and we go our way. True faith draws us to love the giver and not just the gift. But if that's true, then can you be like Job? Remember what happens with Job? It's different than Abraham. As we've already talked about, the test of Abraham involves his personal and willing involvement, participation. That's not how it goes with Job. In fact, one of the ironies of Job's story is if you read it today, you have the curtain pulled back. You know why what's happening to Job is happening to Job. Job does not. And what happens? In a single day, he loses all his wealth, he loses all his children, has a brief lunch break, and then loses his health. By sundown, he's sitting in the ashes of his life, scraping his body covered in boils with a broken pot, reflecting on the death of all his children. And this is what he says. He says, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. It's intense. And again, is God testing Job because he doesn't know who Job is? No, he's proving to the devil himself that he knows exactly who Job is. So those are two facts. But there's a greater one here. It's the one that's most significant. And it's the fact that God doesn't ask of Abraham what he's unwilling to give himself. Let's go back and revisit this story and I just want to show you a few things. First off, I want you to hear again the language of verse 2. He said, take your son, your only son whom you love. There's a reason why that language seems so stinking familiar to us as Christians. Right? That's the language that the New Testament uses to talk about Jesus, the only son of God, the beloved son of God. More than that, If you want to hear Abraham's faith as he goes through this, you hear it in verse 7. Isaac asks this question, where's the lamb? And he says, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. Now, I'm not saying, again, that Abraham knows this is all a ruse and everything's going to be fine. I think that is an impossible assessment. But he knows that God is the provider. 
And the book of Romans tells us that the logic may have been, I know the whole promise is given to Isaac, so maybe if I take his life, God will raise him from the dead. Okay. He has been so trained in the promises of God, he knows there's no change of plans. The promise comes through Isaac, and somehow he's, he's open to that. He's willing to that, but I want you to notice that language. God will provide, because it becomes the lesson of the story, doesn't it? That's what he says after the lamb caught in the thicket is presented. He names the place the Lord will provide. Where did he get that language? It's the same. Okay. In fact, notice this. Verse 14. So Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide. Let me teach you a really simple trick of reading the Bible, which is just a really simple trick of reading. Pay attention to the tense. What would we expect in terms of past, present, and future tense for Abraham to say, God has provided. Instead of my son, a lamb. But he somehow knows that what he's just gone through is prophetic. It looks towards the future. The lamb caught in the thicket is somehow looking forward to another lamb that will come. In fact, the mountain here that God shows him is Mount Moriah. It's right on the edge of Jerusalem. Today we call it Calvary. The significance of what happens here is not just about Abraham and God sparing his son by providing a sacrifice. It's about God not sparing his son. And it's not just Abraham who gets this message. Listen to the following note of the narrator. So Abraham, verse 14, called the name of that place the Lord will provide as it is said to, the day, to this day on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. You know what that is? That's the community of the people of God's expectation for the provision of a Savior. What God does here, not only does he ask of Abraham what he also himself has given. And if you've lost a child, I would remind you of this. That God knows what it's like to watch the death of his son. But more than that, Isaac is spared here because Jesus was not. Now this pattern repeats. If you're a skeptic and you go, I don't know, I feel like you're really reading into it in Genesis. Remember, the pattern repeats. Think of Passover. This is just Abraham's preemptive Passover. When they're in Egypt and they observe God's mighty hand for nine plagues coming the tenth one, Whereas God has made a distinction between Egypt and Israel along the way and just said, this will happen to the Egyptians and not my people. Now he's going to take the firstborn son of every family and he says, and that includes you Jews, unless you observe the Passover, unless a lamb is slain, unless blood is on the doorpost, and then the angel of death will pass over. See, the truth is, Isaac was a sinner, just like every human being who's ever lived, and the wages of sin is death. 
Passover points to the same message. Our need for a sacrifice and God's gracious provision. And I could do this with the tabernacle. And I could do this with the temple. And it would bring us to Isaiah 53. All we like sheep have gone astray, each his own way, but God laid upon him our transgressions. And by his stripes we are healed. What God asks here, he has given freely and fully and willingly. In fact, Jesus is not just the greater Isaac, but the greater Abraham. He's not just the son, the only son. He's the one who willingly lays down his own life in obedience to God. So yes, God is God, but he's also the God of the gospel. He's the God who raises the dead and not raises the dead who were righteous and please him. Raises the dead because his son died on their behalf in their place. And he's graciously and freely offered to give them salvation just by trusting in that act. When we go through our own darkness, when we face our own tests, we need to remember the God who asks is the one who gave. We need to remember that uniquely in all the religions of the world, the God of Christianity entered into human suffering, bore it freely and willingly, didn't just fix our suffering, but took it upon himself. You know what that should tell us? That if we find pain in our life, that it's purposeful. Now that's kind of the climax of the sermon. And I would love to finish with Jesus and the gospel But there is such a significant and important point here. Because remember, as much as this story is about what God will do in Jesus, it is a test of Abraham. Which means it's good for us to look at Isaac and the provision of the ram. But we also need to look at Abraham and learn from his faith. And I want to show you how God responds. So he provides the lamb. The lamb is sacrificed. And the angel of the Lord speaks again in verse 15. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and the sand that's on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. And there's a couple of pieces on the table here and we need to try and figure out how they fit together. One is very clearly the obedience of Abraham. The words here that God gives to Abraham, are they a response to Abraham's obedience? Undeniably. Because you have done this, it opens. Because you obeyed my voice, it ends. And so the blessings that are here, are they the reward for Abraham's obedience? We have to say yes. But is that all we should say? 
I would suggest not, and I'll give you two reasons. One, I want you to notice how God begins these promises in verse 16. So the angel of the Lord said, by myself I have sworn. God takes an oath here. He promises. You know how in a court case, people lay their hand on the Bible and tell them they'll solemnly declare the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? That's the type of swearing we have in this passage. Okay? But as it says in the New Testament, God can't swear by anything greater than himself. But I want you to notice what he doesn't swear by. He doesn't swear by Abraham. Here, what is it that will keep the promise? Is it the obedience of Abraham? No, it's the person of God. I swear by myself, you will be blessed. In fact, the last thing we should notice here, and it's the last difference between this and Genesis 12, is the word surely. I will surely bless you. Now, I think there's a tendency to read this as if God is like, phew, dodged a bullet there, I chose the right guy. Now I'm confident that I've made the right choice and I will bless you. But did God test Abraham because he didn't know what was going on? These words, are they for God to, to align himself or are they for Abraham? When you read the word surely here, I want you to read it for what it is. It's assurance. By the end of Genesis chapter 22, Abraham is more confident that God will keep his promise. Not God. God knew the end from the beginning. In fact, he never made his promises subject to Abraham's obedience. But Abraham walks out of this story, and he knows because God has sworn by himself that he will surely. Assurance. If you've been a Christian for a while, you've heard the word, right? Assurance is how do we know that we are really saved? How do we know that we are believers and that we will be in heaven? How do we know that we've accepted Jesus Christ, that we are the righteous? That's assurance, right? And if you're wrestling with that, I would encourage you to read 1 John because that's what the whole letter is about. These things I have written to you, my children, he says, so that you may know that those who believe on Jesus Christ are saved. Assurance. But here's the thing about insurance. We assume that the way that we get assurance is by looking inside. How do I really feel? What do I really know? Why am I confident that I'm... But this is what Jonathan Edwards says. He says, assurance is not found through self-examination but through action. And to be honest, I have been chewing on that sentence for a year and a half now. It's another paradox. Paradox one, the one I mentioned earlier, that sometimes the greatest threat to our faith in God is his goodness, his provision, his taking care of us. But here's paradox two. The path to assurance is obedience. How is it that Abraham walks out of this more confident that God will keep his promises, more confident that he is one of the blessed and that his descendants will be also? Because of his obedience. 
That sounds so backwards to us, doesn't it? We want the assurance first. Give me the confidence, and then I'll walk in obedience without looking left or right. And God says, no, walk, and the assurance will come. And the truth is, obedience for Abraham doesn't begin in Genesis 22, does it? We've been walking through it for weeks. His assurance has grown. And so there's a cycle here. Obedience leads to assurance, which leads to more confidence, which leads to deeper obedience. But I promise you this. Whenever you hit the edge, the full length of your assurance and confidence, the next step is always action. It's always to take the leap. It's always to obey. Nothing will make you believe in God's promises more than living like they are true. I know it's paradoxical, but it's the truth. Now, I don't think any of you is facing Abraham's test this morning. But there will be tests. And there will be places where God doesn't just take your job away from you, but tells you to quit. And there will be places where God doesn't just displace you, but calls you to leave. And there will be places where you have built something by the grace of God. And by the grace of God, he will say, now walk away. And if you're in that place right now, remember the God of Abraham. Remember the things that we've seen today. Remember all the steps you've taken in your life as God has led you and you faithfully obeyed, maybe with fear and trembling, and found solid ground as you stepped out into the darkness. And then take the leap. The early church fathers liked to say, your belief in the sun is proven not when it shines during the day, but in its absence at night. Our faith is measured in the darkness. But always remember that our faith can never be more than a measure of God's faithfulness. That as we expand our trust in God, not only does God prove himself trustworthy, but that's the point. Faith grows and is designed to grow. It doesn't work like an on and off switch. It's designed to grow so that we can experience the length and the breadth and the height and the width of God's character. Why does he want you to believe? Because there's more of him to know. Let's pray. Father, I know that we're all at a different place this morning. Some of us have walked with you for a long time, can remember dark nights of the soul and difficult asks.
and maybe even know what it feels like to hold the knife. Others are just beginning to grow in our faith, just beginning to taste your goodness. We've responded to the initial call, but we see the road laying out ahead of us and we read things like this and we go, I can't imagine that would ever be me. And some of us do not yet know you. Some of us have not yet experienced your goodness and heard your voice and responded in submission and obedience. But we all have this in common. You made us. You love us. You're making an invitation today to step into relationship with you, to take another step in relationship with you, to take a flying leap of obedience. And I pray that you'd help each one to remember that you are the great initiator. That is not that we initiate and you respond, Lord, but that faith is always a response to the call of God, to the invitation of God, and most importantly, to the work of God in Jesus Christ. Thank you that you did not spare your son as you spared Abraham's. Thank you that on the mount of the Lord it has been provided. And so we can be forgiven of our sins. And we can know life, true life, in relationship with the God who is alive. Help us to be a church, Lord, that walks by faith and not by sight. That steps beyond our comprehension and our reason. That confounds the wise. That makes the contour of your power and your character known. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's worship.